Hi, this is Adele Meisenheimer, your executive producer of Frontline Records Rewind. I'm here today with Scott Frankfurt of the legendary Street <laughs> Called Straight. Thank you for joining legendary. us today. Thank you, Adele. Yes. Actually, Street Called Straight is a bit of a gem that a lot of people don't know about that was on Frontline Records with your wife, your late wife, Jody Mooring Frankfurt. Yes. We'll hear all about their music today, so tune in. Without End by the Frontline Records Group, Street Called Straight. This is Adele Meisenheimer, your executive producer, filling in for our usual host, Les Carlson. And I'm here with part of the group, Street Called Straight, Scott Frankfurt. Welcome to the show, Scott. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be on it, and it's great to see you. Thank you. You know, when I first started uh, being introduced to the Frontline artists a few years back, I heard the street called straight, and I thought, who is that vocalist? What a beautiful, beautiful voice. So I Googled, and sadly I found that Jody, her married name, Frankfurt, but her secular name, who she was famous for, and you can tell us how she was famous, was Jody Mooring. That's right. And I found that she had passed away, sadly, from cancer in 2006. I was devastated. But I kept searching, and I found you. And I got to find more of the story behind your beautiful, 
partnership in writing and singing, but there's so much before that. And that's why I'm excited to have you here today to tell us the roots. How, how did this happen? Listeners, you're going to be so fascinated by the rich history of these two people. So take it away, Scott. Oh, I really, I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, I'm sure that um, there's, there's no way to talk about Street Called Straight without understanding Jody and, um, and our relationship. Um, and so really to understand her best is to know that she, she, her mom was a musician kind of the, the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, um, Fairmont Hotel. She, could, she was from that live era of musician where they, an artist had to be funny, they had to sing great, they had to be able to dance, they had to be able to act, do a live radio show, you know, right on the spot and, and be humorous. And it was being cut to acetate live and then being distributed. So it was in the days where people could really do things, you know, no auto-tune. Yeah. And, um, and so that's the, the, the musical environment that she came up in. And I think by high school, she was um, fascinated with songs. This is, um, you know, Menlo Atherton area, which was, which is, turns out, it was quite a little hotbed for music at the time. Um, she was, uh, ironically, she was um, in a um, bunch of bands there. One of the bands was called Fritz. And one of the key members in Fritz was Lindsey Buckingham. Mm. So they were all up there in, you know, Menlo Atherton High School, um, cranking out the folk songs and whatnot, trying to find their way, you know, discovering mm. music. And uh, they had a little romance going as well. I'm, I have letters to prove it. Sorry, Lindsey, but um, <laughs> it's the truth. Um, and um, about a year after that band uh, transformed, you know, people were graduating and such, and uh, Jody went on to another band. Stevie Nicks joined that band, and then that was the roots of Buckingham Nicks. So there was a lot going on right there in, in Menlo Atherton, you know. Um, and she came out of that and then started pursuing her craft uh, on the guitar, on piano. Eventually ended up in college with a degree from Mills College, studying under Darius Mio. So um, um, just to be clear, she could have been... In Fleetwood Mac I is suppose, what you're saying. According to Life Magazine, anyway, that's uh, there's a there's a funny article about the early days of Fritz, and um, there's a picture of Joe, you know, in the band, and it says um, the woman pictured is not is not Stevie Nicks. <laughs> you know, so it's pretty funny, but um, but the 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 truth of the matter is that those were very disciplined days for songwriters. Um, we're talking the era of Joni Mitchell and people like that, who who you know Jody just revered. And, um, and she was a formidable musician, like I say, from that environment. And um, so as she grew in her craft and grew in skill, um, she was touring. She was doing all kinds of things. She was um, eventually signed to Casablanca Records. Uh, this is, let me see what year this would have been. Is this 79? Uh, it came out in 81, 79. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that was... Um, Neil Bogart's label, Casablanca at the time, and it was, um, she had a manager, uh, Bruce Bird, I believe, and she was married at the time to uh, a man named Michael, who uh, also played in the band, and um, also playing in that band at that time was John Debney. John Debney is the composer of all kinds of films, uh, The Passion of the Christ, um, recently um, Jungle Book, and, you know, the list of films that he scored is immense, and he was in Jody's band, so you know there was all this stuff going on. Like I say, from that that era, um, her husband Michael found me uh, in a kind of a Elvis Costello rock band. I was playing the drums, and he found me at the Roxy and said, "I want to introduce you to uh, an act I'm producing. It's actually my wife, Jody." And uh, long story short, he stole me out of that band, mm-hmm. um, and um, I uh, met Jody and. We were doing a synth pop trio called Trisign, um, which later turned into E99. And we were doing the LA club touring, a little local California touring, this type of thing, on the heels of the fact that her album came out. It had a very risque song for those times called All Girls Want It. And um, it was um, getting good radio play. Uh, It was doing quite well. And then there was a backlash, you know, and uh, the backlash was strong, and it took the single down, and that basically was the end of that, that you know, <laughs> the classic, our, my album was shelved. Thing. So, um, now, going back, 
her mother, right around that time, had a stroke, became a Christian, and was praying hard for her three daughters and two sons. Mm -hmm. And Jody now, uh, with her kind of dreams devastated, you know, because of losing the deal or the mm -hmm. single not being in there, and she had written dozens and dozens of songs mm -hmm. at that time for others and herself. So she was a disciplined songwriter. Mm -hmm. She um, was pretty broken, and then the marriage failed. And um, that that brought her to a place where all those prayers her mom had be, been laying, you know, at the at the foot of the cross for her daughter, um, finally came to fruition, and and Jody came to know the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, now she and I were pretty close at the time because we were writing songs for publishers and such alongside all of our our pursuits with the band. So um, as as uh, as that started to to happen. Exactly at that time, um, we got one of those classic experiences. We're at Madame Wong's West doing our synth pop set, and in walks the guy with the cigar and the Rolls Royce. <laughs> he says, I like that fourth song, Nobody Wins. I want that for a new artist. You're going to hear about her in about a year. You know, and like, we're like, Yeah, right, dude, right. So we go down the parking lot, you know, Wilshire Boulevard, wherever, and um, we get in his roles. He had a role, so he wasn't lying. And um, so we were like, okay, well, maybe we'll talk to him a little yeah. longer. Right. <laughs> and so, um, and he said, I've got this girl. Her name is Tiffany. Um, she's, um, I think at the time she was 14 or 15. She says, she's going to be a huge star in about a year. Mm. Are you willing to meet with me? And maybe we change the title of that song and we do it for her. And so there was some reluctance, but we got together. Long story short, that song ended up on Tiffany's debut album and kind of sealed the deal on, yes, we're real songwriters now. And I think it did about 11, un 11 million units worldwide, probably about 4 million in the U.S. that summer. Oh. Yeah, it was a big song. What's the title of that song? Uh, Danny. Okay. Nobody wins in parentheses. Okay. Yeah, it's on the first, first record. We might even play Tiffany. that for our listeners today. <laughs>
sure to check out Frontline Records' YouTube channel for exclusive live performances recorded right here on our Frontline Rewind shows. We had a really uh, interesting run um, with George Tobin in those days, and we did a lot of publishing work. Um, and eventually it, it was um, clear that there, there was a, a big change in our personal lives. Like I say, we fell in love. We were about to get married. Um now we have this song that's charting, and now there's a little bit of money. I mean, you know, I was selling drumsticks just to like buy food, so it was it was clearly like <laughs> welcome. And and she's now divorced and and in her own apartment now, and trying, you know. So we were we were struggling on one hand, but we had the success, and now she's saved. I am completely as unsaved as it gets because I'm coming from a. Uh, um, very kind of Frank Zappa mindset of like, you know, the problem with religion is that people have books and they believe in the books and that's why they go to war and that's why they kill each other. And that was basically Frank's mantra. And I bought into it 100% because I was a, you know, card carrying humanist. <laughs> and, um, and, but I loved her and um, we, her, her lyrics were changing. The music was changing. And so even though we had submitted some songs to George that were like these kind of in-between strange like moral songs, mm-hmm. warning songs, warning about this. They weren't Christian songs, mm-hmm. but they were clearly clearly songs that were like um, uh, aiming at like a little more of a critical acclaim than like this is not the pop single you were hoping you were going to get from us. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so, um, uh, but that was a, a really good a really good time for us to, you know, quite frankly, just, just figure out who we were, we didn't know we had to figure it out, but it was happening all very quickly, and, and now I know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one day, not to be, you know, you know, ridiculously graphic, but I'm lying next to Jode, and I'm reading my Bible, thinking, I don't think we're supposed to be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like, because she challenged me to read it, and I'm like, you know, a, raised a Jewish boy, you know, from the valley. And so um, for me, it was it was absolutely not. But because I love you, I'll, I'll at least, it'd be intellectually honest to at least read the book instead of just taking Frank's word for it. Mm-hmm. So read the book, got to Isaiah 50 and change, you know, and realized, oh, this is why my reformed Jewishness feels so awkward. Mm-hmm. Because there's this huge, like, dividing line in history between the person of, you know, life if you believe this way about Christ and life if you believe that way about Christ. And all of a sudden it, it made a lot of sense to me. Okay, this is what's going on in the Middle East. This is what's going on in human history. Mm. And that part of it clicked, but there really wasn't still any, really much going on in my heart. Mm-hmm. And then I kept reading and then I was watching Fred Casey Price one Sunday morning. And um, <laughs> and for whatever reason, it was Fred that, that explained <laughs> the gospel to me and I believed him. And... Um, and so I continued to read the book, and anyway, we we cleaned up our domestic situation, and um, um, and then that was really the beginning of of all right. We can't write, perform, do music like we've been doing it because it doesn't. It, there's no integrity in it. We didn't have any any sense as songwriters that we were writing about anything we cared about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me. And the the authenticity thing was always really big with Jody and myself. And so we we tried we strived anyway to try to you know always do good work and when that translated into our hearts changing and translated into the words starting to take over our hearts you know there was there was the lyrics just completely went into a new direction mm-hmm. and uh, we called KKLA and said hi we're new believers we don't know what to do where to go to church i'm a jewish guy she's a rock star what do we do and they gave us um you know a choice of three or so churches and we went to uh a couple of them you know i'm completely have no context so i walked right into a stone cold pentecostal situation Mm. and like and it was awesome but i didn't understand what was happening and i just and i just wanted to understand the book you know yeah and so anyway long story short um there was at that time i was living behind grace community church in sun valley 
And I actually hated that church because all those people always parked in front of my place and sure. I'm getting home at 2 in the morning or whatever. <laughs> and it's like they're waking me up in the morning. You know, I will never go into that building, <laughs> right? And so, so needless to say, uh, that was the third one on the list. Hey, why don't you, since you're in the neighborhood, why don't you go over to Grace Community? So, of course, we sat right in the very last row, giant place. We sat in the absolute last row we could. But when I heard him teaching the Bible, it's like exactly what I needed because I, I, had, I had this belief, but I didn't know what the word was about, what it said. And, um, and, and a pastor of Grace Community. John MacArthur. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is um, still our pastor uh, to this day. I, I love that man very much. And, and there, there's no doubt that um, God must have had a quite a, quite a smile, uh, you know, when I was, you know, basically cursing him and saying, you know, those people over yeah. there. And then I was, you know, for 18 years, Joe and I ministered there, grew there, um, learned our, we, we had our, our, our life there, you know. So uh, anyway, um, so that's what's happening. All of these new things. We're in a Sunday school now. And just randomly as, you know, I had never sung a worship song in my life, mm. but because we're musicians mm -hmm. of course were approached <laughs> it's now time to um this is a song called lord i lift your name on high we want you to play this on sunday mm -hmm. it's like it's called what <laughs> you know? and so so we figured out how to play it um and then we met um who's now one of my best friends uh, the pastor at the time in our sunday school uh john zimmer he um uh he he saw my long hair down to here and saw Joe's, you know, flaming red hair out to here <laughs> and said, I want to get to know those people. And he, he kind of grabbed us and uh, he gave us a shot. So then we started, you know, growing the Lord. We started learning um, the importance of worship and and just starting our Christian walk, you know, as a young couple, um, uh, kind of semi-freaked out from the music business, but with, you know, some some moderate success starting to brew. And a girl came up to us after one of our sets and said, by the way, I heard you're shopping a tape because we were called the vapors at this oh. time. Because we thought, well, life is a vapor right. and we're vapors. And so <laughs> we've got this new thing going. Let's be the vapors. And we put four songs on there. I think it was like Rose of Sharon, World Without End, Countdown to Eternity, something like that, if I'm remembering it right. And handed it to um, this sweet, sweet gal in our, in our Sunday school who hands it straight to her friend who turns out to be Mike McLean at Frontline Music Group. Mm -hmm. And he hands it off to Brian Tong, and Brian um, heard it and really liked it and mm -hmm. contacted us. And also so, at Frontline, yes. Yes, mm -hmm. the, I think he was the president of FMG at the time. And um, so that began the story. That's how we ended up in Christian music at all. It was simply because there was this ginormous spiritual change in two, you know, uh, hopeful rock stars' lives, you know, and he completely rearranged our DNA. Yeah. And then, in a way, gave us an opportunity to continue to find an expression, a sublime way now of expressing our 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 skill set, you know, and being able to use it somehow for, and we didn't know how exactly, but, yeah. but we were able to, um, uh, you know, start that, that walk, that journey there. What do you think the first song that Brian Tong at Frontline Records fell in love with that you guys wrote in that batch as the Vapors? Well, Brian, Brian wrote us a letter, basically a love letter. It was so <laughs> sweet. It was so sweet. And he's such a good man. And um, he was particularly struck by a ballad called Rose of Sharon. Um, the lyric is very poignant. The harmony is very poignant. Um, and that's, that's uh, I think, the one that caught his ear. Because, again, I think, I think at that time there weren't a lot of pop acts on the label. The label was known, as I knew it, for being this cutting-edge place where artists that you would never expect to be speaking about the gospel or speaking about Jesus or God or, or anything spiritual, the genre that they were doing it in was very hard. It was very cutting edge. They were, it was leading edge. And, and at that time, you know, a heavy metal Christian artist, a rap Christian artist, a post-punk apocalyptic <laughs> Christian artist, a, uh, you know, or, a, or in our case, kind of an edgy, a little hyper-creative Prince meets the Eurythmics freak out, synth freak out music. You know, I mean, that's basically what we were doing. But we loved pop hooks and we loved melodies. But, you know, we, we were not, we respected the formula. We loved the formula, but we were really just 
trying to have fun and ex- try to see how good we could be, I guess. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, so that's so Rose of Sharon got it started. Yeah, let's play that. Here we go. Rose of Sharon off the first Street Called Straight album, self titled Street Called Straight. Then I'll go to my 
frontlinerecords.us, we have all kinds of goodies. Artist bios, links to all the music, and a free music offering when you sign up for the newsletter. Check it out, frontlinerecords.us. So you and Jody land a record deal. Yes. How old are you at this time? I am 25. 28? 28. Thank you. Got some help from the audience. Thank you. 28, yes. yes. I was 28. Now, the, a little bit of the story is that Jody was, um, you know, relatively speaking, considerably older than me. She was 14 years my senior, mm-hmm. so that made her 30, 42. And um, so we never felt that. Our whole marriage, um, we never felt the age difference. We were very simpatico on, the, on music and in life and um, and in ministry and all of that. But it, div- it definitely, you know... I mean, it may sound strange to say, but in a way, the the records that we made, we made we made four of them plus a bunch of singles. Um, uh, they were they were kind of our kids. That was our passion. That's where we were devoted is is expressing ourselves, you know, that way. And um, again, we we didn't know a lot about um, touring. We didn't, you know, Brian and the team at FMG was trying to help us, but we were coming at it from I think more of the publishing side. Mm-hmm. So I know Brian was looking at us for songs. And so uh, we were cranking out songs and making these albums as good as we could. And um, um, yeah, and that, that led us to, um, uh, you know, a, a period of growth as songwriters where I think Jody, you know, she primarily did the lyrics. She primarily wrote the germ of the songs at this point. In our secular days, we were more 50-50, but I was so fascinated with sound design we were surviving on sound design on the side. Mm-hmm. So I, I became kind of a synth programmer guy and um, had a long run in technology. And um, and that was really good for us because I could focus on the track and my production craft and just keep aiming at that. And then she could focus on on the song and what God was doing in her life and how ministry was was um, coming into her and then flowing back out in, in this creative way. You know, and I just loved that. I, I always felt that there was, you know, she, her voice um, just had a tone to it that, you know, I just really, I, I was enamored by. And I always thought it read well. Like, it may not be the most whatever type of voice, but it it is definitely, you cannot mistake that that's Joad. You mm-hmm. can tell it's her within a bar. And I've always felt that that's what makes the artists interesting, mm-hmm. you know. So I was, the best word I can use is fascinated by her sound and her, her artistry. I was, I was always... Uh, a huge fan of what you could do. So that spurred me on to just go after the, you know, the technology and everything I could do to try to try to keep up with her right? You know, and see if I could bring something good to her, her really cool songs. Yeah. And we're going to talk about more of that too, because you did some very groundbreaking type of uh, technical things in, in your recordings. But before we get past that, I believe that you said that the song Reconciled was a testimony of sort of this journey you've, you've just expressed to us. Can you tell us more about Reconciled and how that came together? Yeah. Uh, Reconciled was um, kind of that that synth digital, you know, high energy approach, but there's in the track, but there's so much joy and so much excitement going on. When Jody penned the lyric, I think I might have written the bridge so I'm credited on this song but it was Joad's song and it's based on Colossians 120 and um, you know on the run and burning with rebellion you shook me to my knees left me crying truth like thunder crashing through me that's that's Joad's mm. reflection of like all right God just rolled over me you know and um, and on the lyric goes um, um, you know I was blind rushing through the darkness now you've chosen me your compassion tender mercies new every morning it's concise it's it's spiritual but it's poetic and I, I always love that about how she's done that so then the chorus uh, or the bridge he has now reconciled me to himself he's made he made peace through the blood of the cross mm-hmm. you know so it was a very very much the the theme in our thinking you know as we're trying to figure out how to how to express this Christianity that's that's taken over our lives yes. Let's let listeners hear that. Put the music with the lyric that you just read. Thank you so much for doing that. Here's Reconciled, Street Called Straight.
So here you are. So we got a taste of, of Jody's lyric, and and you're putting this new kind of some high tech stuff in here. You're one of the first producers, artists to go completely. I want to say digital as mm. opposed to some tape running around in the room. That's right? fair. That's fair. Tell us about it. Sure, sure. Um, I had an interesting uh, survival job, if you will, which was that I got into the synth industry. Kind of by accident. I was programming a drum machine when the drum machines first came out. I kind of got noticed by, I was working retail and selling stuff and um, I was doing pretty well. I got sent back for training to a company called Ensonic, which was a, an American manufacturer of synthesizers back in the day. And they had a sampler and I, in all of my, you know, proud vibes, you know, I walked in there and said, you've got a great synth here, but you know, your sounds aren't any good and you need <laughs> me to fix it. And for some reason they bought it and gave me a job. And so I'm their West Coast consultant now for then 10 years. I had a 10-year run, and my job was to go and take our technology to major artists in Los Angeles. Like, go sample George Duke's piano. Go sample Paul Jackson Jr.'s guitar. Go sample this one and that one. Here's Earth, Wind, and Fire. Go get Verdine's bass. And go get, at that time, Maurice was alive, so I got to sample Kalimba's from Maurice White and, and singing, go sample Chicago and meet all the guys in Chicago. And <laughs> so I had this calling card that how many, you know, people in their 20s have, have that kind of a break. And so I had brand new technology in my hands. I was meeting the right people. And 
I was pretty good at it and just fascinated with it. So I had more tools at that time and a really good um, understanding of analog and digital synthesis. And so back then, you, you had maybe four tracks max you could play back from a computer. Um, tape ruled the earth back then. And um, there was something called FSK, time, it wasn't time code, but it was this thing you could sync to. So you could take like a Commodore 64 or an Atari 1040ST and you could send a tone to a tape deck. The tone would come back to the computer. This is Nerdville warning. <laughs> the tone would come back to the, to the Atari or whatever you had and it would synchronize now to the tape machine. That meant you could use MIDI to talk to all your synthesizers, uh, all your drum machines, et cetera, et cetera, and they would sync to the tape. So you could put the stuff you had to put on tape, like vocals, but you could have this digital palette behind you. And at that time, that was not easy to do. It was a little little quirky, and we're talking the era of floppy disks. So <laughs> I, had a, I had a box this big. Um, let the record show I'm making about a two-foot <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> two shape. And it um, probably had to... There was probably probably a hundred floppy disks in there that would represent one song because wow. you'd have to load every sampler and then you'd have to load up you know all the drum machines and they all had floppies and and then you could play that from the computer and get a first generation. You didn't even have to hit tape. You could just go straight to your master. Now, with the exception of recording direct to vinyl, there was no way to do that back then to get that first generation onto a disc. So all the excitement about compact disc being digital and all of that, all, this, all the manufacturers were offering instruments that had MIDI, and that was just my wheelhouse. I mean, I could, I could sync that stuff up, and you, know, pro, you, you can hear how mechanical some of these grooves are, like all the music in the late 80s you know, was, except for, you know the rock stuff. But I mean, all the, all the synth pop stuff was very quantized and very drum machine-y and all that. And, and I was a drummer, so I was, I was a legit drummer. So I, I bought into the drum programming all the way. And... Um, and so that allowed us to, um, I'll never forget, dragging on for our first record. We took our budget. We went down in the mixing lab, which was Frontline's uh, uh, studio. And um, I took, like that picture I showed you with all the gear. Mm -hmm. Basically, I took all of this down there oh. and over one cable synchronized it to a tape deck kind of like that. So that even though they were running their tape that would run their console and such, all that stuff was live. Um, so it was a little, it was a little crazy, <laughs> but, um, we also had, um, the first sound tools, pro tools with like a couple of digital tracks. So we recorded Jody's vocal to digital and then all the music was running live off of the instruments going straight to master. So it was pretty, it was pretty unheard of back then. I mean, there were people doing it, but, mm -hmm. but at this level, um, uh, to, to, take everything without really hitting tape ever there was just no noise on these records mm. and that was at the time that was pretty hard to pull off yeah. you know nowadays of course analog and digital is a great thing yeah. you know using the best of both but um, back then it was like woo ddd <laughs> i got the ddd on my on my cd and that was a no question it was a marketing point of the time mm -hmm. and it was definitely a part of our sound yeah right right I mean, that's what I appreciate about frontline artists is there's a lot of pioneering, mm, I want to say no artists, doubt. and I feel mm -hmm. like you were definitely one of those pioneers in that particular field of technology. I mean, it's amazing. Who who would have thought, you know, a street called Straight <laughs> album, one of the exactly. first digitally recorded that's right. albums that's right. ever. What song on this first album in 1991, it's released, do you think represents that technology the best? That's a great question. I think I would say, um, well, of course, you heard World Without End. Mm -hmm. That being the single, that had a lot of punch and a lot of clarity. Um, but I think something like, there's a wonderful Aretha Franklin kind of tribute um, in a song called Think mm -hmm. that um, Jode refashioned. And that one has, again, a very telltale quality to the, the message is pointed. It's a little... Another one of Jody's warning songs. You better think about it, you know, and borrowing from Aretha and all that stuff. Um, it has got a little tongue-in-cheek in it. But, yeah, sonically, for sure, it was a good good representation of the marriage of what I was doing and what she was doing. Yeah, the lyric, the lyric for Think um, is, uh, 
I saw it coming in your eyes. You are heading for a compromise, and they don't come for free. And now the love you understand is measured in ounces and milligrams. Don't let it choose your destiny. You better think. Can you hear the thunder? There are no guarantees when you're messing with your eternity. So that type of theme. Yes. Excellent. All right. Here's some awesome lyric and production to go with it. A song called Think, Street Called Straight. You better know whose side you're on. to be with you today, oh, Scott. Really, really enjoyable. Thank you, Adele. Thank you for telling us all about your heritage and Jody. Oh, how everyone misses her, but her music lives on. And um, there's going to be part two. We get to cover some more of your music. So hang on, listeners, and check out part two. Mm-hmm. 